This is The Guardian. Hi Pod fans, Max here. You're about to hear an episode of Today in Focus that was released yesterday. Liverpool fans attending this year's Champions League final faced a crush outside the stadium that held stark echoes of the worst day in the club's history. David Conn has spent months investigating what happened. Today, a special Guardian investigation into how this year's Champions League final in Paris came so close to disaster. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we start, this episode contains an eyewitness account of the Hillsborough disaster. And it can be pretty tough to listen to. So if that's sensitive for you in some way, just a heads up. On the morning of May 28 this year, thousands of Liverpool supporters arrived at fan zones in Paris. And the atmosphere was electric. It was the day of the Champions League final. Liverpool versus Real Madrid. And it would end in chaos. The scenes we're seeing here tonight are like nothing we've seen at a football ground for years. We're hearing from fans of both clubs who are saying that the riot police inside there are indiscriminately tear-gassing people and pepper-spraying people. There are children coming out of here in tears tonight. These are very, very distressing scenes. That night came closer to catastrophe than anyone realised at the time. What should be the happiest time as a football fan, a festival of football, going to the biggest club game on the planet, for what it became, um, it just sickens me. It really sickens me to my stomach. Thousands of Liverpool supporters, like Kevin Cowley, found themselves crammed together on a dangerous route to the stadium. And then later, blamed for the event nearly turning deadly. For Kevin, a survivor of the 1989 Hillsborough disaster, it was deja vu. I've lived through one cover-up which massively affected my life. And I thought, I can't say this again. Why do they persist in coming up with this, this story? Throughout, there is an echo of Hillsborough. It's just incredible how many there are.
David Conn, a Guardian investigative journalist, spent decades reporting on what happened at Hillsborough and the family's fight for justice. And for the past few months, he's been interviewing witnesses, collecting footage, and speaking to experts to understand what happened in Paris and why, in its aftermath, the blame was once again falsely placed on Liverpool football fans. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the near disaster at Paris's Champions League final. Kevin's path to Paris to see Liverpool play in the Champions League final last May was long and it was traumatic. But it started with joy when he was a kid and Liverpool Football Club was the air that he breathed. All my pocket money went towards going, begging my dad to take me, going on the cop, uh, the old standing cop, um, the smells, the swaying, the, the singing, the camaraderie. The magic of being there and, and feeling as if you were a part of, of what was going on. He was a teenager in April 1989 when Liverpool got through to the semi-finals of the FA Cup and faced off against Nottingham Forest. The match was held at a neutral stadium, Hillsborough in Sheffield. I was 17 years, years old. Everyone's excited, it's a big game, but it was different, it just felt different. You have a feeling when you go to games, and when you've been to a lot of games, something happens and the atmosphere is different, and um, you start to feel uncomfortable. Liverpool supporters had been allocated the Leppings Lane end, which meant that the 10,000 people with standing tickets had to be funnelled through a natural bottleneck, just seven turnstiles. And as those fans started arriving at the stadium, a crush started to develop. There was no disorder because everyone wanted to get in, but obviously a little bit of panic starts to build in the crowd. You know, a sort of like, no, we're not going anywhere and we're in a bit of a bottleneck. You can feel it. Oh, yeah. And, and you start to sort of get a bit uh, sweaty and a little bit sort of clammy and you, do, you don't know how to deal with it, really. You just want to sort of get through. You hope that you will quickly. Eventually, Kevin did get through. He made his way to one of the central pens, a standing area right behind the goal with a high metal fence at the front to stop pitch invasions. As more people escaped the increasingly desperate crush outside the ground, the pen that Kevin was in started to fill up. It was like sardines in a tin. You couldn't get anywhere. You couldn't move. And it just continued to get more and more people inside. Because already at that time, you're thinking, God, this is nearly full. The pen had reached capacity. But outside, the situation was getting worse. Those seven turnstiles weren't enough to get fans through, and people were now getting crushed against the outer wall of the stadium. Police began to worry that people might die. At 2.52pm, the police commander in charge made an unprecedented decision, and ultimately, a catastrophic mistake. To ease the pressure outside the stadium, he ordered his men to open an exit gate, usually meant for letting people out, it allowed 2,000 more people to begin moving into the stadium, many of them 
into the central pens, where Kevin was already pressed in on all sides and starting to panic. It became like um, a life and death struggle in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> and I can't even put it any other way other than, you know, you're in a situation where you think, I can't control what's happening to me here. And um, that distress was building. People crying, crying, physically crying, moaning. Um, just noises that you don't associate with your day out. And then a sound behind us, which you think, what on earth was that? And it was uh, one of the crash barriers breaking. And I went down sort of under uh, the crowd. So I'm sort of completely, you know, I don't know where I am. Um, I think I lost consciousness for a while. I don't, I, yeah, it's a, like a, a dark black moment in, in me that I don't know where I was. Um, but I know I came to. So I started off three quarters of the way up the pen and I came to an under near the bottom left of the pen. And honestly, it's like being on a battlefield. You know, battlefield injuries, people lying everywhere, discoloured, vomiting, sweating, um, not moving, you know. Um, and it, you don't want to think it, you can't, but you're thinking, they're dead, they must be, you know, they're not moving, piles upon piles of people. Um, but I was sort of mired in amongst them. What do you do? You're 17 years old, I had no idea. And um, I had to stand under people at the front, you know, um, to get out. And you're never ready for that. You can't be, you know. You, you go out on a sunny day to a football match. How on earth would you ever be prepared for that? And I wouldn't be now. Almost 100 people were dying, or already dead. More than 700 were injured. The worst disaster in the history of European football. It was the result of a series of police errors, but already, even as it was happening, Kevin was starting to get the feeling that that wasn't how some officers saw it. And so I lay down on the side of the pitch near the main stand and, and started crying, really. I was just in a state shock had hit me. And then um, South Yorkshire police officer came up and kicked me. He kicked you? Kicked me, yeah. And he goes, oh, uh, I wanted to see that you're still alive. And I was like, yeah, I am, yeah. So he said, um, he called me something which I won't say on the radio. And that was it, I was just left there. Um, so when we eventually left the stadium that day, I walked out like, not only in shock, but in shame. You know, I was left with a sense of, you're to blame for this. That sense that Liverpool fans were responsible for the disaster that had happened that day wasn't just a kind of survivor's guilt. It was a narrative deliberately built by the South Yorkshire police, starting in those first minutes after the crush had turned lethal. As people were still dying, the officer in charge that day, the one who had ordered the exit gate to be opened, sending more people into the pens, told the secretary of the Football Association that, in fact, Liverpool fans had broken through the gate. A lie. One that was reported live on BBC Radio and television as the events were still unfolding. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got an explanation for what's happened here, VT. I'm going to give you a line. And the story emerges that 
one of the outside gates leading into that terrace was broken. People without tickets got in. The police also said that the trouble was caused by fans who had shown up without tickets, who had deliberately arrived late, determined to storm the ground. 93 soccer fans died in today's FA Cup disaster, Europe's worst ever sporting tragedy. Most of them were teenagers and children. It happened when ticketless Liverpool fans surged onto terraces packed with genuine ticket holders. Another lie. But this idea that Liverpool supporters had ignored police, been drunk and violent, essentially that they had authored their own deaths. This was the story that took hold. The story that police gave to journalists. The one that was splashed on the front page of newspapers like The Sun and that would ring in the ears of survivors for decades. I knew that it, that it wasn't the truth. Um, I knew what had happened on that day. And when you read the fact that suddenly you're to blame for it, you know, it, it piles on the guilt because you come away from it and I felt so bad about it. I bottled it up, um, just crying on my own. But when you read that and then someone's telling you, oh, by the way, you did this, you did that, you're thinking, why are you saying that? Because you put your trust in people. Um, I, I, you put your trust in, in the state in some way. You know, you put your trust in the police and think, you know, they're out in my best interests. But obviously, um, from the way we were portrayed, um, and, and what I now know, you know, you, you can't do that. And um, it, it, it compounded my shame and guilt and coping mechanism for decades because of what they did. Kevin, how long until you were able to go back to a football stadium after that? I gave up going for 10 years because Liverpool was my life, my total life. But my love had gone because I couldn't put myself back in that position. I couldn't. I thought, if I go back to the ground and this is hits me like this, what will I be like? Over the next three decades, police continued to lie. And Hillsborough survivors and the families of victims campaigned to bring the truth to light. Finally, in 2016, after the longest case ever heard before a jury in an English court, an inquest concluded that the 97 people who had died as a result of those events were unlawfully killed due to gross negligence by the police and that no behaviour by the Liverpool supporters contributed to the disaster. The commander in charge admitted it was his mistakes that directly caused the deaths. Over those same three decades, gradually, Kevin has been healing himself. After 10 years away, he slowly made his way back to football and to football stadiums. And he's discovered that when the anxiety subsides, there's another overpowering emotion that he still gets from football. Joy. This past May, 
Liverpool made it to the Champions League final. They were playing Real Madrid in Paris's Stade de France. And Kevin and his mates bought tickets and booked flights. I love that competition. I love that trophy. And so when we got to that final, I couldn't wait because, you know, I love to go to European games with my friends because that's where we have some of the greatest times. We had friends coming from Russia uh, and Denmark, you know, and we're all meeting up and it was a great party and then we're, we're going to walk down en masse. You know, we'll go down together. The Champions League final is pretty much beyond doubt the biggest and most glamorous club, football club match in the world. David Kahn is an investigations correspondent with The Guardian. It was going to be in St. Petersburg and it was moved in February to Paris, to the Stade de France, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And also, it was the first Champions League final since the pandemic to be hosted with a full crowd. So... It should have been a great floodlit celebration of Europe, of European football, sport, culture and of life returning to normal after the pandemic. And David, how do fans usually make their way to the Stade de France and what path did they take that day instead? The Stade de France is a difficult, awkward stadium in a very built-up area and there's a wide approach and that is the one that is used to direct the thousands and tens of thousands of people that need to access the stadium but for that match it turned out that the police decided to reroute the Liverpool supporters completely on a different way and that route is full of hazards it is a natural bottleneck And it's been a known hazard since 2016 and not used as a main route since then. And that was the start of the chaos that ensued. It's not really clear why the French police made that decision. But it seems to be something to do with problems that had come up on the main stadium approach a few weeks earlier at a domestic French football game. Police may have thought they were solving one problem, but they were actually creating another they decided to send Liverpool fans down this route which they knew had been problematic in the past. And it would prove so again that night. They came out of the train station and instead of being directed up to the main walkway, the police had had signs taken down and blocked that off. And where they went was down a fairly narrow street. Then they went to this literally just a pedestrian subway underneath the A1 motorway, which is built for residents, very few people at a time to cross the motorway, but thousands of people went through that subway. Mm. Then from there, the queue goes up a ramp up to the stadium, which is a narrow ramp. And there's five lanes of stewards and police, barely more than a handful, checking the tickets. And it was so, so slow. And so many people were coming through and joining the back of the queue that there was very serious congestion building up uh, from the exit to the subway and leading up to the ramp. And within that crowd, you have people that may have been actual survivors of the crush at Hillsborough in the pens. Many, many people more who were at Hillsborough 
who've said that they started to feel anxiety, panic. They genuinely started to fear for their lives because they know that this can result in a fatal disaster. There are people who were extremely uncomfortable in that queue and it became more and more and more congested. It was chaos, absolute chaos. And it didn't seem to be getting any better. You were just in a crush of people going up to the ground. And, you know, to say that we were restrained is an understatement. Because, again, you're standing there for over an hour, heat, no water, no toilet facilities. People of all ages, shoulder to shoulder, cheek to jowl, not going anywhere. The guy that I spoke about earlier from Denmark, I've got photos of him because I was taking some footage around me and he's absolutely ashen-faced because he can't believe what's going on. It just didn't move, it was so disorganised. At the front, the checkpoint just wasn't working properly. You're also against the A1, the motorway's roaring past. And also there's that panic where there's no way out. Why is this happening? You know, there's no organisation. <clears throat> no one's making any, you know, this is because of this. There's no sort of loud tannoy, like, you know, don't panic, whatever. There's nothing. And I'm starting, my hackles are rising. Oh, I'm, I'm not happy with this. I, I'm not in control again. The feeling of being carried along in that way starts to evoke memories of Hillsborough that I don't want, even from an early stage. And I'm starting to close down, starting mm. to sort of become not antisocial, but just not me. I'm not like, oh, I'm going to a game and I'm enjoying it. I'm just like, I've got to get out of this. David, this potential crush that was developing at the outer perimeter of the stadium sounds absolutely terrifying. And it was getting worse. How were the stewards and the police dealing with it? What happened at this narrow bottleneck, totally unsuitable perimeter checkpoint is that ultimately it's been acknowledged officially that there was a risk of crushing, there was a danger, and they abandoned the checks. They stopped checking for security, searching people, and checking people's tickets and just wave people through to alleviate the crush. And, you know, there's there's some conflicting accounts of how long exactly the checks were abandoned. But what's happening there is you think you're solving a problem, but what you're doing is acknowledging that your operation has failed and you are just giving up at that point and allowing people through. And as at Hillsborough, you're in danger of transferring one set of problems that are meant to be solved at the perimeter to the stadium itself. In other words, you've lost control. Yeah, they'd lost control. So David, at this point, crowds have been allowed through the outer perimeter. Stewards have abandoned the checkpoint, at least temporarily, and people are now moving towards the turnstiles on the very outskirts of the stadium. What happened once they reached that point? So... Finally, they thought, right, we've made it to the stadium. You know, we're going to be able to finally get into the Champions League final. But when they got there, they found 
at the Liverpool end, most of the turnstiles closed for long periods and queues built up again. Liverpool fans, young children, women, started to get distressed and they were laughing. <laughs> they were laughing at us. And so people said, why, what was going on? Give us your... And they were just laughing and joking. Who was laughing? The, the stewards. Mm. Just laughing at us being distressed. I mean, what do they? What do they laugh at when you say people are in distress? You know, people shouting, "What are you doing? What are you doing? Let us in!" You know, look at him; he's crying, and they were just laughing at you as if to say, "I don't care; it's not my job." The people actually reporting injuries, physical injuries, crushing injuries, have reported the injuries at this point. It was another dreadful. In fact, it was worse because. It was out of control in so many different ways and the police started pepper spraying people. <laughs> French police very casually pepper spraying supporters in their faces. We've just been pepper sprayed for no reason and we have tickets. We're standing on a fence trying to get into a ground. Okay. One of them who was just kind of asking what the hell's going on here was on the other side of, of some railings. It was a very famous clip of the 11-year-old boy whose dad had gotten the ticket as a surprise 11th birthday present having to have pepper spray wiped from his eyes, saying, I never want to go to another match again. The Stade de France, the country's flagship football stadium, is surrounded by some of Paris's most deprived areas. Neighbourhoods where many residents couldn't even dream of paying up to £600 for a ticket to a match like the Champions League final, happening right on their doorstep. But that night, with the outer security perimeter checks abandoned, at least for some time, many decided to head to the stadium anyway. And some started to cause trouble, robbing fans and picking fights. There were young kids, local kids, running and, cl- and jumping onto the fence. And then they'd vault the fence, jump, fall down the other side, and run into the ground. And a guy came down um, our side, a local lad, and he's obviously pumped up for trouble. And he's picking fights with people. And he's having fist fights with people in the queue. And I was starting to reach the point. And again, strange one for me because European finals. I was thinking, I'm just going to walk away. I'm going to go back, find a bar. I'm watching the bar. I've got a ticket, but I don't care. But the only thing that put me off doing that was there was no control on that outer cordon. You know, I could have been picked off, robbed. There was just loads going on everywhere. And I thought, I don't trust this situation for my safety. You felt like at that point you couldn't really leave. I mean, it sounds like you felt like you you were stuck. There was only one way through this crowd and it was forward. Yeah. (laughs) It was absolute chaos there and there were barriers down all over the place I've still got a bit of a swollen ankle which swells up because I went over on a barrier getting in to that part Three hours after he arrived at the stadium 
Kevin finally managed to reach an open turnstile, only to discover another problem that many of the Liverpool supporters would face. One that UEFA would later try to blame on the fans themselves as the source of all that night's trouble. Genuine tickets failing to scan. I gave the steward my ticket and my ticket just went red as if it was, you know, not a, not a real ticket. And um, the steward just sort of went as if he didn't care. And he just passed it back to me and he just waved me through. I know it's a proper ticket. The fact that it hasn't gone green on that turnstile is not my problem because he, he's waved me in. So I walk through the turnstile um, and then I just get grabbed out of nowhere. My arm gets like nearly put, twisted round. This big steward just grabbed me. And I'm going, mate, I've got a ticket. I've got, I said, he's just let me in, I've got a ticket. And um, he said, oh, get out, get out, you get out. And starts pulling me round. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, oh, 50 years old, what are you pulling me around for? I'm too old for all this. And then these two police come over, uh, the CRS with all the, you know, the battle gear on. And they start hitting me with shields. And they're going, get out, get out. And they're swearing at me, really, really swearing at me, you know, boom. And you must get out. You know, I said, I'm not going out. I'm not coming out. I said, I've got a ticket for the game. I said, do whatever you want. So I'm not going out. And one in particular was really, really going at me. Uh, and I knew he was trying to provoke me to do something to him that he could justify. Um, and I said to him, I said, you can't talk to me like that. I said, I used to be a policeman. I said, I know what I'm talking about. I said, I know that you're trying to provoke me. I said, and that won't work. And he let me through. But to be honest with you, I couldn't have cared less. Liverpool could have been parading that cup at that moment, and I didn't care less because I just wanted to go home. You know, I'm 50 years old. I've seen a lot in life, but I've been through what I believe is one of the most traumatic times at Hillsborough. And I feel that despite the fact no one died, and thankfully no one did, that I've lived through the very closest equivalent I could ever have. Someone could have said to you, relive Hillsborough, off you go. And that would have been very, very close to it. It was that, it was that dangerous. Oh, it was horrendous. It, honestly, it, extreme danger only, you only really realise after the fact. At the time, you fill with adrenaline and you think, oh, yeah, I've got to get through this, I've got to survive. Um, it was the closest I've ever been to it, especially around that turnstile. It just... I look back now and it just frightens the life out of me. I went to my seat uh, and I sat down. I just had my head in my hands because I thought I've just lived through this again. It got to the stage where there were still so many thousands of people outside on the Liverpool side because of all the problems that they'd been and because they'd kept the turnstiles closed for so long that there was just no way that they were going to get them all in by the scheduled 9pm kickoff. So they had to delay the game. Uh, UEFA took that decision and then they put a statement up on the big screen that says, due to late arrival of fans. Now being relayed into the stadium and it's actually appeared on the, uh, the big screens high at both sides of the ground. The match has been delayed. It says, due to the late arrival of fans at the stadium, the match has been delayed and it will kick off. That's the plan, is in, did it say 15 minutes? Yes, later, so it will be... 
And obviously hundreds of the Liverpool supporters just reacted so angrily to that because people had been there for hours and um, and they hadn't been able to get into the stadium due to the absolute chaos outside. We understand that that statement um, that blamed late arrival of fans for the kickoff being delayed was a pre-prepared statement some considerable time before the match that in the event of a kickoff being delayed, it was likely that they were going to say it was due to late arrival of fans. Mm. <laughs> it's so insensitive and it looks like it's blaming the fans for arriving late. And also, if you had any awareness of Hillsborough and the lies that were told about late arrival of supporters at Hillsborough, when again, they arrived yeah. in very, very good time and they were yeah. caught in terrible congestion outside. You just wouldn't put an announcement up like that. And it immediately completely incensed the Liverpool supporters. It just makes you laugh. You think, how on earth can they say that? Because if we hadn't have acted in the way that we did, they would have been facing a major disaster. There's no doubt in my mind. I was convinced someone would die that day. Convinced of it. Were you able to process any of the match or did that just fade into the background? Not at all. And as soon as I got out, I messaged my wife and I said, that's it, I'm, I'm never going to another European away. And that for me is huge because I loved them. David, why would they have done that? Run this pre-prepared message that did not align at all with the reality of what was happening outside the stadium. Isn't it perverse to say, we're going to blame the supporters, whatever happens that day? Yeah, it's, I'm sure that they didn't think of it that way. And it seems like it's part of contingency planning. You know, the people who made this decision might have thought, if there's a kickoff delay, it's, it's going to most likely be because it's late arrival of fans. But... It is an example that seems to show the distance between the organisers of the event and the people that are actually coming to the match. Just using the word fans, late arrival of fans. Yeah, yeah, like a, a single, faceless, irrational entity, the fans. And that is what happened at and after Hillsborough as well. The fans. The fans were late. The fans didn't have tickets. People are people. They're not fans. They're not a crowd. If the organisers of these events would have that in their minds, then perhaps they would have more of a concentration on their safety. Because these are people that need to go back safely to their families. David, the match did eventually begin and Liverpool lost 1-0. And afterwards, attention turned to what had happened outside the stadium in the hours leading up to the match. And for a lot of people, the worst was actually still to come. On the journey back from the stadium, there were reports of people being violently attacked, even stabbed. The UFC champion fighter Paddy Pimblett described being threatened by men with machetes. In the cage, this one-on-one. When we came out of that ground, there was groups of 30 men running around in big packs and just like some of them had weapons, you know what I mean? Some of them had machetes and knives and bars and stuff like that and bats and as I say though, I've never been so scared for me for my own safety and me the people around me's safety. 
is when I come out of that ground on Saturday night. Even as that was going on, French authorities were starting to frame the narrative of what had happened that night. What were they saying in those very first hours after the match? Yeah, it wasn't even hours after the match. It was probably about half an hour after the match. UEFA itself made a statement. Uh, it has been a statement released from UEFA, and they've said that um, in the lead-up to the game, the turnstiles at the Liverpool end became blocked by thousands of fans who had purchased fake tickets, which didn't work in the turnstiles. So they said that the delay to kick-off had been caused by thousands of Liverpool supporters who had purchased fake tickets that didn't work at the turnstiles. And essentially that was the cause that was given to the world. So you had this like just totally astonishing moment where a second claim against Liverpool supporters that is travelled down the years from the Hillsborough false narrative being laid on Liverpool supporters in 2022 live on television it kind of physically turned my stomach. Like, like, I just, I had a very visceral reaction to that. Like, I just could not believe that UEFA itself was labelling what is always going to be a multiple series of failings, uh, a, a failure of safety that put thousands of people attending the match at risk as essentially all caused by supporters themselves. Mm. And still, when it's clear, like anyone who knows anything will know, they can't possibly have the evidence for that on the spot. In the days after the match, the French government took that idea of fake tickets and raised the stakes. In a press conference, the Minister of the Interior thanked the police for the way they had handled things and said what had caused all the problems was, in his words, industrial-scale fraud. I'd like to thank the forces of law and order, also those who worked in the stadium, because they were very calm and they were able to avoid drama. The pre-filtering by the Stade de France and the French Football Federation saw that 70% of the tickets were fake tickets coming into the Stade de France. He claimed that up to 40,000 Liverpool supporters had tried to enter the stadium with fake tickets or no tickets at all. That would mean the vast majority of Liverpool fans at the Stade de France that night, 7 in 10, didn't have proper tickets. But that doesn't really stand up. Official data from the main Liverpool turnstiles shows that that night, only around 1,600 Liverpool tickets showed up as invalid. And it's still not clear if that number includes valid tickets, like Kevin's, that failed to scan. And here's the other strange bit. Once everyone was seated and the match was kicking off, footage taken from one of the Liverpool gates shows only a few people still milling around. And so some have asked, if there were 40,000 people turned away from the stadium that night, where were they? It's just very flawed and I don't think that um, it has much credibility left at all. And it's very likely that, you know, it was just as the intelligence said, which is a relatively small number compared to the size of the crowd. So given 
that lack of evidence, why do you think it was that French police immediately sought to blame the Liverpool supporters? That their reflex was to say that those people were at fault? What we also saw in the days afterwards was the same prejudices against English football supporters and Liverpool supporters in particular that people have spent so long and the Hillsborough families themselves spent so long rebutting. And, you know, I think a lot of people thought that that battle had been won. But the French interior minister and sports minister started to talk about how Liverpool supporters present this very specific problems of hooliganism. And we reported, I reported, that in one of the official reports, it actually states that the police intelligence based on the Hillsborough disaster of 1989 was that they needed riot police to guard against hooliganism and disorder. Wow, that was the lesson? I mean, on so many levels, that is just kind of eye-wateringly wrong. There was no hooliganism at Hillsborough. There was no misbehaviour. So how have the French police in 2022 decided that it was characterised by that? But second of all, what on earth are the French police doing in 2022? referring to something that happened 33 years earlier Mm -hmm. to determine their operation. And what I've spent a lot of time since then trying to understand uh, what the intelligence actually was, and it's really clear that the intelligence from Merseyside Police, who obviously liaise with Liverpool and police Liverpool matches, was that they love their club, they'll come and have a drink, they'll come and enjoy Paris, but there is essentially no hooliganism Uh, element in Liverpool supporters in the modern day that was the intelligence it was clearly shared in a proper way with the relevant French football policing body and yet somehow the Paris police that were in charge of the match didn't absorb that and came up with this mad misconceived prejudice about Hillsborough it's truly shocking Coming up, 33 years since Hillsborough. Why some things have changed and some still haven't. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. David, since those events last May, there's been an internal French government report which seemed to put a substantial part of the blame on Liverpool supporters. There's also been a French Senate report which absolved Liverpool fans and was more critical of the way police handled things. There's also a UEFA investigation ongoing. It's expected to publish its findings by the end of November. But crucially, neither UEFA nor the French government have been able to explain why in the aftermath of the match, 
they claimed Liverpool supporters were involved in large-scale ticket fraud, and that was the reason we came so close to another crush, when there was almost no evidence for that. As of now, authorities still haven't retracted that claim. You've reported on the disaster at Hillsborough, and now the near disaster in Paris, and the way that both were blamed on the fans who were there to watch the match. And I wonder if you feel like, in spite of the investigations of recent years into Hillsborough, and all the lessons we've learned, or should have learned, that actually less has changed in the past 33 years than we'd like to think. In a way, that has been the most shocking thing. That <sighs> Listen, it's really shocking that the Champions League final at the Stade de France in 2022 resulted in a near disaster. That is really shocking and the way that the police mismanaged it and um, the brutal way that they policed, it's truly shocking. But <laughs> just those things can happen. Unfortunately, we've had to discover that about the French police. And if you're not careful, big events can turn dangerous and you need to learn the lessons. But almost more shocking has been the way in 2022, 33 years after the Hillsborough disaster, with all the lessons that you thought had been learned about not blaming the victims on the spot and giving them a, giving them a narrative that they have to fight, that they still blamed it on the fans and labelled them and produced this prejudice about, even about the disaster itself. Um, there's definitely an element where they just did not know what they were taking on as well, because you're dealing with a huge group of people, the Liverpool football supporters, the Liverpool football community, the club itself, that have been through a 33-year justice campaign against lies. You know, there are great campaigners and great leaders and they just switched straight into justice mode and representatives of supporters' bodies went and gave evidence at the French Senate. I think the Liverpool supporters, once again, have stood up for themselves as the people that they are, the people. But unfortunately, these labels, they cause damage. We've seen it. They, they, they last over time. They get embedded in the public consciousness. The lie told on the night broadcast around the world is a lot more powerful than the efforts to, um, to rebut it that is kind of a painstaking thing that has to happen over the next weeks and months and years. My disgust with UEFA is massive. The fact that they continue to peddle this false narrative. It's like, you know, if all else fails, let's, let's blame them. Because, you know, who'd believe them? Just normal people. The only thing that I could um, take any solace in, which I did on, you know, on the day, is that they can't get away with it this time. Because everyone saw it, everyone recorded it, times are different, social media exists. And so the narrative that they successfully pushed in 1989, they can't push now. That was Kevin Cowley. Thanks so much to him and also to David Conn. You can read David's incredible visual investigation into the Champions League final at theguardian.com. 
The Guardian sent UEFA a detailed series of questions, but it declined to answer. Spokesperson repeated an earlier apology and said, UEFA will no longer reply to your queries until the end of the independent investigation around the events in the build-up to the UEFA Champions League final at the Stade de France on 28 May 2022 in Paris. Before we go, you've probably heard adverts for our new six-part podcast series, Can I Tell You a Secret? It's really, really good, and all six episodes are available from tomorrow. That's the 23rd of September. So go and subscribe now to Can I Tell You a Secret, wherever you listen to Today in Focus. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Josh Kelly. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Homer Khalili. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.